Many people have a let's make a deal theology. What I mean by that is let's make a deal theology is a theology where people think that if they do good, then God owes them. They essentially make a deal with God. If I am a good enough person, if I do these good things, if I live my life in such a way, then God, you owe me. I mean, after all, I deserve it, right? I worked hard. Even though I could have gone out and I could have stolen things, I didn't steal. When I could have cheated, I didn't cheat. When I could have fill in the blank, when I could have sinned in some point of my life, when I could have taken the shortcut, I decided not to. I lived an upright life. I lived a righteous life. God, you owe me. I did the right thing, so you owe me, God. I think life very easily disproves this theology. There is no one, not a single person on this earth, that is free from heartbreak. Not a single person on this earth that is free from suffering. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. But people still like to hold on to this theology. And what happens when we hold on to this theology that we're good only so that God will be good to us, so that we're good only so that God will reward us, then when the suffering comes, when the pain comes, when life doesn't turn out the way we think it should turn out, is we become bitter and we become angry with God. After all, he never lived up to his side of the deal, did he? I lived up to my side. I was a good person. Why is he failing? Why is he not living up to his side? I was good, and he was supposed to make my life good. I did all the stuff, and he was supposed to make it so I would never suffer. A lot of people have this theology and don't even recognize that this is their theology. If you have ever thought, God owes me. I did this, so now God, you owe me. You might have, let's make a deal, theology. If you have ever thought, if I do this, then God will do that. You might have, let's make a deal, theology. If you've ever screamed out to God, why God, I've been good to you and you haven't been good to me, then you might have, let's make a deal, theology. The problem with this theology is it is not based on the Bible. In fact, there is an entire book of the Bible that argues against this theology that argues against let's make a deal theology. And that is what we will talk about today, along with two other questions, which uh, we'll talk about today, because today is no longer summer in the Psalms. We are now switching to uh, questions. <laughs> so we've got question and answer Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't quite figured out the title that I'm going to give that sermon series yet. Uh, I had a lot of 
I had a lot of ideas, and Jen shot all of them down. So I thought red-pilled would be a good one, but she was like, no, Aaron, I don't think so. So anyways, in between these two, I always like to do Question Sunday. Uh, if you are wondering about Question Sunday uh, or how you can get a question out there, we have on the back of your bulletin an area to write down questions. Oftentimes during a sermon, you might develop a question and you might not remember to ask me later on, or you might not want to ask me. You can always ask me a question, by the way. You, but, but for some reason or another, you might not ask me a question. This is a great place to write down your question and have it answered. And actually, I think oftentimes the whole congregation can benefit from the, from the question, too. So if you get it, maybe even during this sermon, you get a question. Write it down. There's an offering box in the back you can turn it into. And eventually, I won't promise I'll answer it the next Sunday, but eventually I will answer it. And so we've got a couple questions to work through today. The first question is, why didn't Adam and Eve die right after eating the fruit? And that's based off of Genesis 2.17. So we can turn to Genesis 2.17. It's always good to read the question in the context. So if you remember Genesis... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And so we've got the Genesis 1 is the creation account. Genesis 2 digs a little bit deeper into that creation account. And so Genesis 2 really dives into specifically the creation of Adam and Eve. And so we get through the creation of Adam, and then we get through the creation of Eve, and we get to verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of every tree of the garden. So here he is, he's created man and woman, he's provided them a garden, they can, they can feel free to go eat of any fruit of the tree. And then verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. All right, so he's given them this command, he's given them uh, uh, the command not to eat, and then he says, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you can see how a, a lot of people would take that to mean instantly, right? Because that's, that's kind of what it sounds like in Genesis. So we've got, I think, four basic answers to this question. The first answer is that, there, that what God meant by die, or that you will uh, die, is that there, they will experience a literal physical death. But the reason why they didn't die instantly is because God showed them mercy, and so, based upon his mercy, they end up living out a full life. The second is that it is a spiritual death. That God didn't actually mean that they would literally physically die, but that they would experience a spiritual death. The third is that, uh, the answer is that the literal physical death process would occur the moment they eat, ate the fruit but it wouldn't be instant death. And then the fourth answer is that it is both of a spiritual and a literal death. So let's dive into each one of these. The first one is that it's literal, but God shows mercy. Uh, so this argument is that they were supposed to literally die the second they took a bite, but in God's mercy, he decided to allow them to live out their life. Now, so they would take Genesis 2.17 and they would say, that's literal, it's going to happen at that instance. But when you turn to Genesis 3 and you read the description uh, of the fall, that God shows mercy. The only problem I have with this is, one, uh, God doesn't confront them right away. 
And then two, that's not part of his reaction to them eating the fruit. So I don't actually think that, that they were supposed to die instantaneously once they took the bite of the apple. Uh, and then God showed mercy. I don't necessarily think that's it. The second argument is that it's a spiritual death. So this argument states that it was a spiritual death, and after, uh, after all, death is a separation, right? So our souls separate from our bodies. That's death. Thus, the death God was talking about was us being separated from him. And to a certain extent, I think this is, we could see that this is true, right? That they experience a separation from God. That perfect relationship that they had with God is no longer there. But I th- kind of think it misses the point of the original text. In Genesis 2.17, he doesn't say, and you will experience a, a spiritual death away from me. I think God is literally talking about a physical death. So I don't think that this answer, this solution, gives uh, the text justice. So, that leads us to the third one, which is that it is literal, but the process of death begins. So, it's not instantaneous death. So, before they ate of the fruit, death had not entered the world. They had not known death. Now, their bodies, upon eating the fruit, their bodies would begin the process of deteriorating. Uh, We could look at the text, and we could say that it could be read the way the Hebrew is laid out. It could be read, uh, in that very day, or as soon as you eat, you will die. Or it could also be read, at the moment you eat of the tree, you will experience mortality. And I think that's really what he's getting at here is that before they ate of the tree, they would never experience mortality. So they were created, and then they would live on in perfect relationship with God forever. But upon eating the fruit, they then begin to experience mortality. I think that is really, that does the text the best justice. So that's what I would argue. I think that it is a literal death that God was saying, hey, you will literally physically die and the process will start the second you take a bite of the fruit. The fourth solution is that it is literal and spiritual and it just argues that both the literal and physical death would take place and that they became spiritually separated from God uh, Though I think as we read through the Bible, we can make an argument for spiritual death. We, we see the argument for spiritual death, that upon eating the fruit, they were spiritually separated from God. This particular passage is not referencing spiritual death, but physical mortality. Thus, the death process began, though they did not die immediately. So that's, that's how I would answer that question. Maybe that just sparked even more questions for you. I don't know. Uh, but that's, that's how I go about that one. The next question is, what is Shekinah glory? This question comes from last week when I used the term Shekinah glory several times. The term Shekinah glory is not actually found in the Bible, just so we're clear on that. Uh, but it is a term created by theologians to reference the glory of God dwelling with Israel. So the word Shekinah actually comes from the Hebrew word shahan, 
which means to dwell or to reside with. So the term Shekinah glory literally means God's presence dwelling with. When theologians use the term Shekinah glory, it's usually linked with either the wilderness wanderings, when God's glory was with them, either by a cloud by day or a light at night, or it is also used when God's glory filled the temple and God dwelt among his people. And so that's really all it means. It means that God's glory was dwelling with Israel. That's, that's the term Shekinah glory. That's all it means. So that brings us to our last question. <laughs> Flying through these. How do you explain how God seems to make a bet with Satan over Job? I think this one's going to take a little bit more time. So this question comes from Job chapter 1. We can turn there now. So Job chapter 1, Job starts off, it, it starts off verses 1 through 5, it is explaining what a good life Job lives. He was blameless and righteous. He was incredibly wealthy. He had a, a large family, which in those days was a really great thing that just showed that God was blessing you. If you had a bigger family, you were thought of as more blessed. If you had no family, you were thought of as cursed. He was well-respected, and those around him looked up to him. He seemed to have what people in those days would consider a dream life. So then in verse 6 through 12, 6 through 12 we see what some people consider a bet. And, you know, there's a lot of people that consider this a bet. This is actually an important question. There are a lot of atheists and people that are anti Christian that, that key in on this and they say God is making a, a bet with Job. He must be uh, just kind of a narcissistic guy. There's a lot of atheists that make that, that, uh, that argument. But then you also have a lot of Christians. In fact, I think in the Action Bible, if your kid has an Action Bible, the, the title over this part would be like God's Wager. Or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it's something along those lines. So there's a lot of people that think this is a bet. So let's dive in. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he does on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And you can kind of see how you get this idea that there's a bet going on, right? Like, if you read it, you can kind of see where they're coming from. But I think if we go back through and we kind of look a little bit closer, we, we, might, we might come away with a different idea. 
So first of all, uh, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So th this is a scene that's happening in heaven, right? We get a rare glimpse into how, how things are operating in heaven. The term sons of God here just simply means angelic beings. So these angelic beings come to give a report to God, which is interesting to think about because God is omniscient, right? God knows everything, and yet he still has angels give a report. That's interesting there. So, uh, so they come to give a report and uh, the, to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also comes among them. Now, this uh, interesting, we use the word Satan as a name, so we say, you know, Satan might tempt us, but this Hebrew word is literally, uh, just means the accuser. So we've transliterated that, we don't, we don't translate that, and the accuser also came among them. We, we transliterate that word Satan, giving the accuser a name of Satan. But it literally just means the accuser, which is interesting. It, and, and it's not like the accuser, like, you know, how uh, your sibling might accuse you of something. Your siblings ever do that when you were younger? Accuse you maybe of something you didn't do? And you get in a little fight about your sibling accusing you? It's not an accusation like that. This is actually, if you think of like a courtroom setting, the accuser here is more of a lawyer. You could think of this accuser as a prosecutor. And he's in heaven, and now we get kind of, in heaven, a courtroom scene. Someone is going to be on trial here. And the accuser is the prosecutor, coming to lay accusations. So we've got the accuser, and this is a courtroom scene. So in this courtroom scene, the accuser shows up and God presents Job. And the Lord sa said to Satan, said to the accuser, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him? So God presents Job. Now why would God present Job? I think it's because Job is righteous and he loves God. He's saying, what a great relationship I have with Job. Job loves me, and I love him. This is the type of relationship that I can have with all of my creation. But the accuser responds. Does Job fear God for no reason? So in this courtroom, what is the case? A lot of people would say that Job is on trial here. They're kind of arguing over Job a little bit. But I think if we key in on this, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? What's the actual accusation? I think Job is the evidence that is actually being used in this trial. The case is God... You're not worthy of praise. That's the accusation Job is making here. He's saying the only reason anyone would ever praise you is because you bless them. Essentially, you have to bribe people to praise you. If you didn't bribe people, if you didn't bless them, if you didn't put hedges of protection around them, they would never praise you because you're not worthy of being praised, God. That's what the accuser is saying, and I think that sets the stage for the trial. And who's on trial? God. And what's the case? 
that God's not worthy of praise. That the only way God could ever get praise is if he lavished us with goodness. Essentially, what, jo- what Satan, the accuser, is saying is, let's make a deal, theology exists. And the deal is, if you continue to bless them, they'll continue to praise you. But if you quit blessing them, they'll curse you. Not only will they curse you, but he says, they will curse you to your face. They're going to hate you. If they actually just if you just cut off all the goodness you give them, just based on who you are, they're going to curse you, God. They're going to hate you. That's the argument the accuser is making. So so though Job is being tested, it is really God who is on trial. So I think the beginning of the answer to this question is that although it seems like God and Satan are betting over Job, It is actually a trial, and Job isn't even the one on trial. The one on trial is God. Job is part of the evidence. And with that, the trial begins. So if you know the story, not everybody does, but if you know the story, the accuser attacks Job, and he takes away every earthly possession. All of Job's children die. Everything he owns, stolen or wiped out. His wealth, his status, his children, his family, gone. And what is Job's response? At the end of chapter 1, verse 20, we pick up. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the evidence is pointing towards God is still worthy of praise. Even when life seems lost, even when it just seems like everything has been ripped from you, God is still worthy of praise. No matter the amount of suffering you have gone through, God is still worthy to be praised. Verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now chapter 2 picks back up and we see that Satan's not done with his accusation yet. Satan's still looking for a route because Satan is the accuser and Satan is rebellious against God. So Satan can't understand that we worship God because of who he is, not because of what he does for us. That's something that Satan can't understand. And so Satan comes back around. But I want to pick up in verse 3 before we get to, to Satan. So the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on, on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And he said, so God once again presents Job and he's saying, hey, look, still this relationship is good. You still don't understand that this is what a relationship with me looks like. That you can be content even in the midst, midst of loss. That you can praise God even in the midst of loss. 
And then I want to key in on this. He still holds fast to his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Evil fell on Job. And Job suffered without reason. This word reason here literally means without reason or without cause. It could also be, mean in vain or possessing no value. I think this is a huge lesson for us, and I actually think it's a comfort. Now, some people won't think it's a comfort at first, but bear with me for a second, that sometimes we suffer evil, we suffer loss, and there is no point to it. There is no value, there is no reason, there is no cause. And I think this is a huge comfort, and it's one of the main themes of Job, and it totally discredits let's make a deal theology. Because oftentimes when we think about let's make a deal theology, we think as long as I'm good, God will bless me. But we oftentimes don't think of the, the converse of that. Or what some theologians call retribution theology. And that is, if I sin, then God's going to make me suffer. Now don't get me wrong, there is suffering caused by sin. Oftentimes that suffering is, our, is the natural consequences of sin. If I go out and get drunk and drive home and get in a car accident, I'm going to suffer consequences of that. That's not God punishing me for my actions. That's simply the consequences for my actions. But there's this idea that I think Job refutes, and that is retribution, or let's make a deal theology. That is, if I'm good enough God will bless me, and conversely, if I'm bad and if I sin, then God's going to make me suffer. So how is this a comfort? Because I know a lot of people would say, hey, look, to know that there was a reason, to know that there was a point behind this, that's what gives me comfort. And, and I think that this actually gives us more comfort because we know that God does, is not responsible for evil. And you don't have to beat your head up trying to figure out what the reason is. I've known so many people that have tried to figure out what the reason is that they are in pain right now. The reason why your loved one died. Is it because you need to be taught a lesson? And I can't tell you how many times I heard that when my first wife died. It's okay, Aaron. God did this for a reason. It's okay, God did it, and there's a purpose behind it. And I have to say, God is not the author of evil. And we clearly see here that there are times when there is reasonless and purposeless evil that happens. I don't have to go seeking, like, what is it? What's the lesson God's trying to teach me here? In a fallen world, in a world full of rebellion against God, there is going to be purposeless evil. So here God refutes the idea 
of let's make a deal theology. He says very plainly this calamity is senseless. There is no reason for Job and his, to feel this pain. There is no reason for Job to suffer. It is simply evil that has befallen on him. But I think this is a comfort because when you experience senseless evil, number one, we can say that God's not responsible for it. And number two, we can turn to God to be comforted by it. And here's what's amazing. Is when you experience senseless evil and you turn towards God, He repurposes what was senseless and gives it purpose. And He grows you in a deeper relationship with Him and He comforts you in a way that you would never experience without it. So I go back to my first wife's death. Senseless death. No cause for it. And instead of being angry and bitter, instead of saying, hey God, I'm a pastor. You owe me. I can say, God, I'm heartbroken. But I know you're good. And in that moment, God continued to grow me and continued to comfort me in a way that I'd never grown and in a way that I'd never been comforted before. And I grew in a deeper relationship with God than I would have ever had before. And that's the comfort. God is not responsible for evil, and yet He can comfort you in the midst of it all. But Job and his friends haven't figured this out yet. They still kind of have this let's make a deal theology, in particular his friends. And so they begin, his friends come to visit him, and they begin to have this argument with him. So they begin to have this argument with him, but before they even get to have this argument with him, Satan comes back, and, and you know he's made this deal with God, and he says, hey, look, you know, Although I've taken everything away, he's still worshiping you because he has his health. And so uh, God says, go ahead, you can strike the man himself now. Just don't kill him. So then Satan goes and he afflicts him. And we pick up with Job in verse 8. He's lost everything and he took pieces of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So here he is, a man of suffering, a man of sorrow, sitting in the ashes, scratching himself with pottery. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Are you still claiming that God is good? Are you still saying that let's make a deal theology doesn't exist? Why don't you just curse God and die? Listen to the power of that statement, and could you imagine your own spouse telling you that? Just curse God and die already. Just get it over with. That is a woman who has felt intense suffering. If, sometimes we focus in on Job and we forget his wife. She has experienced the same amount of suffering he has, right? She has lost all of her children. She has lost all of her status, all of her wealth. 
and now she sees her husband and she knows she's about to lose him too because he's got this plague and he's just sitting in an ash heap scratching himself with pottery and he's so miserable and what does she do? Because she doesn't turn to God for comfort, because she doesn't hold on to her integrity, because she had let's make a deal theology, she's now bitter and angry at God and what's her response? Just curse God and die already. But Job's response, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Because he understood it's not let's make a deal theology. He understood that God is worthy of praise whether you are in pain or whether you are healthy. Whether you are grieving or whether you are celebrating a new birth. In all of life's circumstances, God is worthy of praise. And so he holds fast to his integrity. He does not sin with his lips. And then his friends show up and they begin, actually I should say his friends in quotations there, and they all try to convince Job that it was something he did, that he sinned somehow because they hold retribution theology, they hold on to let's make a deal theology, and they say, you've sinned somehow, so God is punishing you for all this sin. Well, let's take a step back for a second because I also want to add that let's make a deal theology and retribution theology is self-centered theology. The idea that God would kill my wife to teach me a lesson? Boy, does the world circle around me or what? God doesn't kill off people to teach me a lesson? No. That's self-centeredness. Let's make a deal theology. Retribution theology is self-centered theology. So his friends try to show up and they're like, hey, you sinned. That's why God killed your kids. Because you sinned. And Job insists that he has not sinned. He insists that he stays upright. So I think of his friends as like being put on the, on the witness stand, right? And we get to see them get cross-examined. And then finally God comes and he sits on the stand and God gives his testimony. And it's in one of the most incredible pieces of Scripture that we have. If you haven't read his testimony, you need to go through at the very end of Job and read what God has to say to himself. But what's interesting here is he never tells Job why he suffered. He never tells him that the accuser came and said you were only righteous because of how I bless you. And that you would never, never continue in your integrity if I let him curse you. He never tells Job all that. The only thing he says is, listen to me describe myself. And then he goes on with his description, which is such a great description. He talks about playing with the Leviathan as if he's a little puppy. He talks about playing with the behemoth. He talks about how great he is. And he asks Job, were you there when I created? He doesn't talk about what's unfolding in heaven. He simply says, this is who I am, and based on who I am, I'm worthy of worship. That's what he says when he's on the witness stand. And then Job gives his response, and I think it's the only appropriate response. 
found in chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. We are finite creatures. We are created beings. But God is infinite. And His wisdom are things that we cannot always understand. We can't always know why we suffer. We can't always know why there is pain. But we can know who the Creator is. And we can be comforted in our suffering as we draw near to Him. Here I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So his response is, hey, God, I don't understand everything, but I know who you are, and you are too great for me to understand. And what's crazy is, after this, God then turns towards Job's friends, his friends. He says, my anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And then what's interesting is he actually has Job intercede on their behalf. They can't come to God, but, but they have them come through Job. And Job does it. Job intercedes on their behalf. Although they've, throughout this entire book, they've accused him of doing wrong, and he has to stand up for himself, and he has to stand up for God. And I think this is one of the results of going through suffering and drawing closer to God without even knowing why you are suffering. But as you suffer, you draw closer to God. God works in your heart in a wondrous way so that you can even pray for those who hurt you. It was hurtful for them to come and label and throw accusations at Job. And yet in the end, he intercedes on their behalf. His heart overflows with love for them because he knows who God is. So as you draw closer to God in the midst of your grief, you can begin to forgive those who don't even deserve forgiveness. But you give it because you know there is a God who is bigger and greater than you or I can imagine. So I would say this is not a bet. It's not a wager. It is a trial. On trial is God's greatness. And in the end, the story of Job reveals how truly great God is. That he is worthy of our praise, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. That he is worthy of our praise in the mountaintops, 
and in the valleys, that he is worthy of our praise in the highs and the lows. Let's make a deal. Theology misses the mark. God doesn't owe us anything, no matter how good we think we are. Because in all honesty, you are not that good. We have all rebelled against God. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God at some point and said, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. And for this, we all deserve both physical and spiritual death. We all deserve that separation from God. But because he is merciful, he came and he paid the price for us, burying our sins and our rebellion on the cross. He doesn't owe you anything, but because he loves you, he offers you eternal life. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in him and his work on the cross. Have you done that yet? Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you are infinitely bigger than we can imagine. That you are infinitely more wise, more great, more knowledgeable than we can understand and we can fathom. And we understand that our tendency is to go back to a let's make a deal theology, thinking that you owe us because we didn't yell at a stranger. You owe us because we did what we were created to do. And Lord, we understand that you don't owe us a thing. And yet you have given us the greatest of all, and that is a relationship with you. We pray as tragedy strikes that we would not be tempted to blame you, to accuse you, or to become bitter at you, but to draw closer to you. And as we draw closer to you, we pray for comfort and a changed heart. In your name we pray. Amen.